All right, before we get going, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers, Callie Ream and James Moore. I hope, Callie, I really hope that's uh, how you pronounce that first name, K-A-H-L-E, Callie, I'm pretty sure. But either way, thank you both very, very much. For those of you who are interested in Patreon, we do three episodes a month, two minis at $2 a month, and uh, we do a full-length one on there as well every month. So for 5 bucks, you get a full-length and two minis every month if you want to join. Also, if you don't want to join, just want to do one-time donation, you can hit me up on Venmo at MC Podcast. I'm not going to acknowledge any reviews, although I do have a few new ones. Uh, after this episode, I will do them at the end of the next episode, and I do also have to give credit to a book for a huge part of my research. It is a book by Stephen Nichol and William Helmer called Babyface Nelson, Portrait of a Public Enemy. For those of you interested, super interesting book, lots and lots of details on a lot of stuff. I enough details I couldn't put them all in this. So, with that aside, on with the show. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Lester M. Gillis, alias Babyface Nelson. Babyface Nelson resented all cops. I mean, if you wore a badge, you were the enemy. Babyface was an effective criminal and an excellent driver. He holds a record for killing three FBI agents, and that's the most ever in history. All right, let's get down and dirty. With Lester Gillis, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson. He was born on December 6th, 1908. Nelson was born Lester Joseph Gillis in Chicago, Illinois, in an area known as the Patch, which was the near west side. He was the youngest of seven children to Belgian immigrants, Joseph and Mary Gillis. His father worked as a tanner, worked very hard, was a respectable guy, and Gillis appears to have had a very strong and loving family. I mean, as the story gets on, his family does play uh, a lot of big factors, uh, especially in his late teens, early 20s, and it's, it's, really nice. it's really nice to see that he had a family like that. As a young kid, he loved animals, right? So he was always bringing strays home, and his parents usually made him return them to the streets. Except for this one time, he brings home this uh, terrier, which he had named Rags. And he came home and he told his parents this story about how he was cornered in an alley and, you know, getting attacked by this bulldog. And this terrier came out and confronted the bulldog and chased him off, and... And Lester was telling his parents, I gotta keep him. I can't just let him go. He saved me from this bulldog. And obviously his dad thought he was full of shit. His mom was just kind of, you know, she just kind of played along with it. And they ended up letting him keep the dog. And they were best friends, right? Until one day, until one day the dog was caught by a dog catcher. And his dad refused to pay the fee to get it released. So, Kai was kind of brokenhearted over that. He ended up getting a new dog that he had found named Brucey. At the age of six, Lester, and for the record, I'm going to refer to him as Lester Gillis until the time he changes his name to George Nelson, which will be at the end of this part one episode, just to make it a little less confusing. 
At the age of six, he was enrolled in Lafayette Public School. The first few years were good. He had good grades. He wouldn't get in any trouble. He was known as a, you know, fairly average student, but, you know, he kept up pretty good. By the time he was age nine, his parents decided to enroll him in St. Mark's Catholic School. And he was kind of upset he had to leave his friends behind. And he honestly hated the school. It was more strict, and he just didn't really like that. So he started skipping class a lot. And this was right around the time in 1918 when his sister Jenny, who had just turned 25, had died. It was on October 19th, 1918. She ended up dying of the Spanish flu. And they had the service in the front room of their house. And it was weird because Lester's mom, Mary, noticed that he wasn't there. Noticed that he wasn't in the room for the service, for the viewing. Well, she goes around the house looking for him and she goes up to his room and, and finds him hiding under the covers in his bed. According to her, he was scared to see his sister's body in that state, you know, being dead. And his mom took him downstairs pretty much to show him that his sister was a piece, you know. And to Lester, that wasn't how it was. He was scared. You know, she walked him into the room and she even said, she's like, he was trembling, you know, as I walked him in there. And she also goes on to say that from that day going forward, that Lester always hated the idea of death. And she said it was it was to the point where even when they were driving by a cemetery, he wouldn't look at the cemetery. He would just shudder. He would just he had this huge fear of of death. And, you know, (laughs) when we get into some of the later years, because obviously I've researched ahead of this episode. Yeah, that dude was not going to go quietly. You know what I mean? He was he was a wild one. But anyway, so around the time of his sister's death, he starts getting into more trouble at St. Mark's School. And his parents decide to send him to St. Patrick's Boarding School, which is like 50 miles south of Chicago. This is where his one of his o- other older sisters was attending school and, you know, it was kind of away from the city and they thought it would do him some good. The first month goes by and he's pretty happy. He's doing really good. Until one random day, mind you, he's probably about 10 years old at this point. He shows up at his father's tannery, and he's soaking wet, and he's dirty, and he's holding a tiny little kitten. (laughs) And his father was just kind of like put back by it. And he's like, why are you here, and how did you get here? So Lester tells him that the day before he had left the school... He had slept overnight in a cornfield during a thunderstorm, and that's when he found this kitten. And he said he spent all night trying to keep the cat warm and dry during that thunderstorm. And the next morning, he had hitchhiked by two different rides uh, into Chicago to his father's tannery. And when he gets home, his mom, who was usually the, you know, he was, he was a mama's boy. He was a mama's boy for sure. And she was usually the one who, you know, was sticking up for him and, oh, Lester wouldn't do that. He's a good kid. And his dad was usually the disciplinarian, but he gets home from that and his mom's just ripping his ass, you know, and his dad at that time was the one who stuck up for him. You know, he's like, listen, the kid's obviously homesick. He's 10 years old and he literally just hitchhiked 50 miles back into the city of Chicago, man. Obviously, he doesn't want to be at the school. And they enrolled him back at St. Mark's. And the, the deal was that they would let him come back. His parents would let him come back if he went to class because he wasn't a bad student. He really wasn't getting in trouble in school. He just wouldn't go to class, you know, and he did good for a while. And then he started skipping classes again. So his mom is like, okay, fine. You want to skip class? You want to skip school? I'm going to walk you to school every single morning. And, And that's what she did. She walked him to school every single morning. And by noon, she would get word that he was gone again. 
the sister superior of the school eventually told his parents that he wasn't allowed there anymore. And she felt bad for telling them that because he was very well liked by teachers, by staff, by students. And he was a, he was a good kid when he was in class, but he was just rarely in class. So they wanted to expel him. So at age 11, he gets enrolled back into public school and he's still having problems making it to class and his parents decide to discipline him harder and there was a one story that you know when his dad spanked him gave him a whipping this is from his sister's account his sister julie uh you know he'd get a whipping from his dad and he'd just take it he'd just give him a cold dead stare and just take that whipping man take that ass beating from his dad and then when his mom did it (laughs) she said it was really weird because she'd just be laying into this kid just spanking the shit out of him you know and he just she's like it didn't even phase him every now and then he would just kind of crack a smile because it was never as bad as the ass whooping his dad would hand out so he just kind of you know was like whatever it didn't really phase him you know His, his sister julie said uh Quote, whippings, making him work, punishment of all kinds made no difference. I don't think he ever wanted to hurt our parents. In fact, he was always very considerate. He was always wanting to help around the house. He just couldn't resist temptation. He figured he didn't need school, so he went his own way and fell in with a bad crowd. End quote. And as you're going to see... He has a lot of problems with authority, but during his school years, he was known to have a short temper and he did get into fights with some of his classmates, but he would never do it in or during school. He was always very well conducted when he actually showed up to class. In 1919, a dude named John Perkins moved into the patch and this is relevant because John Perkins remains a friend of his almost until the end. And like I said, the patch was the, a pretty rough area of the west side of Chicago. Lots of immigrant families, hard working class, low income, a lot of hooligans running around, you know. But this John Perkins moves into the patch and immediately starts getting bullied. And he says as soon as he became friends with Lester Gillis, the young Lester Gillis, who at this point in time is about 11 years old. This is a quote from John Perkins. He says, quote, nobody messed with Les. He was the toughest kid I ever met, tougher than rat shit. He never backed down from a fight, no matter how big, old, or ugly the other kid was, end quote. And so once he befriended Lester Gillis, Nobody fucked with him after that, because by this time, at 11 years old, little Lester Gillis, who was fairly short, like full-grown Gillis was only like five foot four to five foot five and about 135 pounds. He was not a big guy, but he was tough, man, and he would not back down for he would fight anybody so he had respect among like this little gang that he was running with at the time and this john perkins it was funny because john perkins in this interview was like you know in order to get in with this little gang that he was in you had to prove yourself he's like when i joined the gang it was because lester gillis vouched for me he said i didn't have to do anything that dude's word was enough with them guys. And he's, <laughs> he goes on to say, he's like, I don't know what he did like before I moved to the patch, but his word was gold with them boys. Like if you ran with him, you were good to go. So he's roaming the Chicago streets with this gang of kids. He's like 11 years old, you know, and, you know, he's with a couple other kids from the neighborhood and shit. They were involved in, some, you know, some petty crimes. And one of them would be they would go to stores and they would ring registers. And what it was was the older guys would go distract the store employees. You know, they cause a little ruckus in the store. And young Lester Gillis, because he was so small and fast, would go hit the no sale button on the register, take the cash and run out. And because of this he he always had a prominent role in the gang because he loved danger 
he would always take a dare. He would never back down from a dare. And the best part about it was that the gang liked is because he was so well-mannered and he looked so young for his age, this was a very big advantage in their little criminal enterprise that they started having here. Yeah, he's a very unsuspecting kid. And I mean, granted, he's literally a kid. He's 11, 12 years old, stealing shit out of registers and stores. But he looked, still looked super young, even though he's literally my son's age right now, my older son's age, which is just beyond me. You know, from time he's about 11 or 12 into his teens, you know, he's stealing tires, he's running moonshine stills, bootlegging, you know, he'll eventually get into armed robbery, he becomes a very accomplished car thief, and, you know, he was dubbed babyface around this time by the, all the members of his gang because he looked so young, and even full grown, like I said, he was like 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, you know. 135 pounds he wasn't a big guy and he looked super super young so his gang started calling him babyface in his in his early teens now going back to his school days after a while his principal at the lafayette public school had to expel him for not showing up to class again just like the you know sister superior at the catholic school before the principal didn't want to expel him because he was like, he's a good kid. He's a likable kid. He just doesn't fucking show up for school, man. I don't want to do it, but I kind of have to. So his mom goes and tries enrolling him in uh, Glenwood School for Boys. And this was a good venture until the school found out that Lester Gillis and his family were Catholics. And they straight up told his mom, you should probably look somewhere else. We don't want Catholics going to this school. So, he was not allowed to go to the Glenwood School for Boys, and he ends up being placed in the parental boarding school, which is basically like a home for wayward boys, and it's filled with mostly orphans and troubled kids, or kids who were, like, unsupervised, or their parents just straight up didn't fucking want them anymore. So he gets thrown in there, and you know, it's very strict, when he gets there, he can't leave school except for on the weekends, and that's only if his grades are good and he doesn't break any rules. And he ends up making friends with all the other kids and the staff, even the staff, very, very quickly. He didn't have any problems with the rules, and his parents would visit him every Sunday. In the spring of 1921, he is returned to the custody of his parents, and he promises his parents that he would stay out of trouble. You know, he's like, listen, I'll go to school. I won't run around with the, you know, the bad crowd anymore or whatever. And his mom was pretty hopeful that, you know, this is going to get better. But instead, it got a little bit worse. On July 4th, 1921, he was arrested at the age of 12. How this happens is he was at a friend's house in his friend's garage and his friend's dad had a new car. And Lester, you know, they were over there checking it out. Him and his buddy, you know, they're like crawling all over in the car. And Lester gets in the driver's seat. And he noticed a loaded revolver in the pocket of the driver's side door. And his mom would later say that he always had a fascination with guns. And it was mainly because his father hated them so much. He wouldn't even let the, the boys in the family play with toy guns. And she's like, that's more than likely what made his fascination with them ten times worse is because they were strictly forbidden. So since it's July 4th and there's firecrackers and all this shit going on, Lester's like, let's go fire off a couple rounds. So the two boys took the gun into a nearby alley and there were already some kids playing in this alley screwing around and shit. And Lester Gillis, young Lester Gillis, is... Like, hey, let's scare the hell out of him. You know, so he takes aim and he shoots at this fence post. And almost simultaneously, as soon as he fires this gun, one of the boys in the alley starts screaming and grabs his face. And what happened was when the bullet hit the fence post, the bullet fragmented and a piece of it hit the boy in the jaw and lodged into his jaw. So when Lester's mom gets home later that day, she was babysitting for one of Lester's sisters, there's this huge crowd gathered outside of her house. 
And she's like, what in the hell is going on? As soon as she gets home, one of the neighbors comes running over and is like, hey, Lester's been arrested. And all she says is, my God, what has he done now? <laughs> like That's literally what she said, direct quote, right? So a few days later, he shows up in juvenile court and his parents did pay the hospital bills of the other kid. And his mom goes and tries pleading with the judge saying, listen, like this was just an accident. It was a tragic accident. But she also says, hey, you know what? This guy shouldn't have had a damn loaded gun where kids could get it. You know, like he's partly at fault too. But because Lester already had a long record of misbehavior at this point, he is sentenced to 12 to 15 months in the Cook County School for Boys. And the thing about this is, is he gets in there, and I shit you not, the superintendent of this is basically like a like a kid jail, alright? It's like a fucking juvenile jail for boys, right? Kind of, kind of. But the superintendent and his, and his wife end up loving him. They were like, no, he's a cheerful kid. He always followed the rules. He was very respectful to everybody. He always did extra work around everywhere. So they end up literally loving Lester Gillis, right? And the couple would let him go with them when they went to the country. You know, they would go there to buy fresh milk and food for the boys' school. And they would take Lester with them. They're like, God, freaking, we love this kid, man. I shit you not. When they would get outside the city limits, when they were on these little trips and shit, they would let him drive the car when he's like 12 years old and he's already in a boys' school and shit. The dude had some charm, okay? And they honestly didn't have any bad things to say about this kid. You know, they, they said, yeah, we'd let him drive the car all the time as soon as we got out of the city limits, whatever, you know. He's a good kid. So obviously he's doing pretty well for himself in this boys' school. And one day him and another boy come up missing. And they're just like, shit, little Lester Gillis escaped with this other kid. But when they ended up finding him, you know, a short time later, he was in the garage. And what he was doing was he was servicing the superintendent's car. He was in there literally making sure the tires were filled, changing the oil, changing the filters and shit, because he had this fascination with cars at about this time is when he started getting it, about 11, 12 years old. And this does come into play a lot. So he would always be taking care of the superintendent's car. And they, they were like, oh shit, I guess he didn't escape, you know? And after a few months of him being there, his mom was able to take him on Sundays as long as they were back by 8 p.m. And his mom even goes on to say that these were the happiest times that they had together. And she's like, it was just me and him. And he was just the baby of the family. They would go to the city and watch a movie. They would go out on picnics. But his dad would never go. His dad was drinking hard at this point, and he's starting to become very despondent with life in general, and especially with Lester at this point. We're assuming it's because, you know, he's starting to get into a lot more trouble and just running around with a bad crowd, dude. He's a pretty young kid. So one day, Lester and his mom are in a streetcar, and they're on their way back to the reformatory. She's on her way back to drop him off on a Sunday evening. And they were about a block away, and he told his mom, it was raining outside pretty hard, and he told his mom that he didn't want her out in the rain to walk him back. There was another family on the streetcar that was heading back to the reformatory too. So Lester is like, I'll just walk with the other boy. Me and him will walk together. There's no need for you guys to go walking out in the rain to walk us a block to back to the reformatory. So she's like, okay. Only if you promise that you're going to go back. And he probably just flashed his smile, man. He's like, I promise, Mama. I'll go back. So the next morning, Mary Gillis gets a phone call telling her that uh, him and the other boy didn't go back to the reformatory. About two hours later, he shows up at home. And he says that they didn't want to go back to the reformatory that they wanted to go to Florida instead. <laughs> and uh, what they did was they got on another streetcar and they rode into Cicero. We borrowed a car 
and just started driving south. And he says that they got a few miles out of the city and they decided it was too far to drive all the way to Florida. And they turned around and just came back home. And uh, his mom, Mary, she made him a big breakfast and then she took him back to the reformatory. I mean, the thing about it was is, uh, because he only had this one slip up while he was in the reformatory, he was released after his 12 months was up. Like I said, he got a 12 to 15 month sentence because he only messed up this one time. He was released after after a year. And the first few months that he was out, it was pretty smooth. You know, he's still running with his buddies, you know, a little gang and shit. But he's staying out of trouble. Kind of. Okay. He's running with a little bit tougher crowd now. And they have a little bit of a rougher reputation in Chicago. At this time, like I had mentioned, he's really into cars. Okay, it was like all he ever talked about. And his father would never let him drive their car, ever. So his uncle Jules, who had a farm outside of Chicago, he would go to his uncle's house and his uncle would let him drive. And his uncle Jules would go on to say, you know, he had an unusual ability to drive cars and said he was an amazing driver. And this is when this kid's like 12, 13 years old, right? So one day, his dad, Joseph, noticed that his car was missing along with Lester. And what he did was he stole his dad's car. He had picked up all his buddies and he took him for a joyride all out through the country. They all ended up returning that night. Nobody was hurt. The car wasn't even scratched. And it was funny because all the neighborhood kids talked about how fun it was. Like, they just went on an adventure. Joseph was pretty embarrassed, and he was super pissed. They never specified how he was punished, but they said that he punished him severely enough that he never stole his dad's car ever again. But all the neighbors' cars started coming up missing. <laughs> and they would come up missing, like, in the middle of the day, or in the morning, along with Lester, and they would be returned without a scratch, but an empty tank of gas. And his parents are like, dude, like, quit fucking stealing the neighbor's cars, man. Like, what are you doing? And uh, he never understood how serious it was, because in his mind, he's like, I'm only borrowing them. Like, I bring them back. What's the big deal? All I do is run them out of gas. I'm not doing anything bad. He's like, I don't even scratch them. He just didn't understand how serious the ramifications were. Until one day, one of his neighbors does call the cops, and Lester gets arrested. On October 10th, 1922, at the age of 13, Lester Gillis is charged with auto larceny, and he gets sentenced to 18 months in the Illinois State School for Boys at St. Charles. And they put this kid to work in a tailor shop, like on the second floor, and he hated it. Absolutely hated it. On February 12th of the following year, 1923, he was reported missing. He was later found hiding in a basement sewer pipe. And a couple weeks after that, he was transferred to a machine shop in the school for, uh, for work. And he liked it a lot better. It was more challenging and he was working with his hands and he just enjoyed it a lot more. And he started making the best of the situation that he was in. And believe it or not, Lester Gillis played a huge role in constructing a small zoo on the reformatory grounds. He would go out there and take care of all the livestock. And I mean, they had like cows and squirrels and raccoons and rabbits and shit out there. And he took care of all of them. He just really loved animals. He started doing okay with his grades there. He was never a really good student. He just did enough to get by. I can totally relate to that. But the thing kicker is is when he's almost done with his sentence okay he only had a few more weeks to go to complete the eighth grade and his mom convinced him to stay in this boys school in this basically a state-run reformatory for kids she convinced him to stay an extra month so that he could get his eighth grade diploma and he agreed to it and he did he got his eighth grade diploma and uh, he was released on April 11th, 1924, and he came home, and he was 
really happy and really enthusiastic. All his family members said so. And it was funny because mom's like, no, as soon as he gets home, like he started showing me how to make beds the right way because I had been doing it wrong. Apparently he's helping out around the house a lot more, but him and his father still had this big tension all right, between them. And, and they pretty much avoided each other at all costs. His dad was drinking a lot more because um, one of Lester's sisters, Amy, had convinced their dad, Joseph, to invest their life savings, like him and Mary's life savings, into a restaurant. But you got to think this is 1924, all right? The, the restaurant was not doing good at this point. So because of the tension and his dad's drinking and shit like that, Lester goes to live with his sister, Julie, and her husband. He was trying to ease that tension with his dad. You know, he's like, I'm just going to go far away. Like, I know my dad doesn't fucking like me. And his sister, Julie, had two kids and one on the way. And she even said he was terrific to have around. He helped out so much. She said he was a terrific babysitter, and he would spend most of his days on his hands and knees scrubbing the floors of the six-bedroom apartment. She totally appreciated having him around. But at the same time, Lester Gillis is still running the streets with his little buddies, and he starts stealing car parts and starts stealing cars with some of his old friends. And he falls into this group of guys that were known as the strippers. And they were tire thieves. And he started acquainting himself with more local criminals. And one of which actually employed him to drive bootleg alcohol through the Chicago suburbs. So Lester Gillis is driving cars. He's doing what he loves and what he's good at. And you'll, you'll see later on, like he actually hit the racing circuit for a little bit. And he was really, really good at what he did, man. But yeah, he's running liquor through the Chicago suburbs when he's like 13 years old and shit. So yeah, all these guys were pretty much associated with the Tui gang. And he basically didn't want to be associated with the Capone faction of, of the outfit and shit like that. So he associated himself with the Tui gang. Lester Gillis starts working at a place called Standard Oil. And it's a gas station, and it's in, in his neighborhood. And it doubled for a headquarters for him and his group of buddies that would steal tires and steal car parts and cars and shit. So, like, he's technically got a legitimate job, but he's technically still doing a bunch of illegal shit. And on the last day of summer in 1924, he was caught in a stolen car joyriding with friends, and his parole was revoked. And on September 28th, 1924, he is sent back to the state school at St. Charles. You know what I bet Babyface Nelson used to keep that baby face so smooth? Probably Harry's. All times of any, now is not the time to overpay for razors at the drugstore. Harry's knows that sometimes it's better to stay inside. That's why they ship directly to you. So you can experience the quality of a hairy shave in just a few days from the convenience of your own home. Personally, I like Harry's. And for those of you who have seen my face, yes, I often do have facial hair. So you're like, why are you endorsing razors, man? Well, faces ain't the only thing you can shave if you catch my drift. But in all seriousness, I do shave every once in a while. And Harry's does it for me. It's, it's a great razor and the shave gel smells really, really good. <laughs> and uh, you honestly can't beat the prices. You really, really can't. Uh, you can join the 10 million who have tried Harry's, including myself, and you can claim your special trial offer by going to harrys.com slash mysterious. Why on earth would you even want to choose Harry's? Well, because they have quality, durable blades at a fair price, literally just $2 a blade. They cut out the middleman, they manufacture blades in their German blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century, which means you get incredibly high quality blades at factory direct prices. That and it's super convenient. Blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule, with or without a subscription. Besides that, you have a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. 
and 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans alike. Listeners of Mysterious Circumstances can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash mysterious, and here's what you'll get. A weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, which is super important, nobody wants razor burn, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. Like I said, all you gotta do is go to harrys.com slash mysterious to start shaving better today. Now, his father is having a lot of problems right now, Lester's father. He's drinking heavily, he's he's in like financial dire straits because of the stupid restaurant, and he's already tried like two half-ass attempts at suicide, okay? And his family, like, they wouldn't, he wouldn't go get help when he was sober. So basically, like, all his problems stayed within the family. Until on Christmas Eve, 1924, he comes home drunk. And later that night, his wife Mary smelled gas and found Joseph dead in the next room. And the coroner attributed his death to, quote, asphyxiation due to inhaling illuminating gas Said gas escaping from ceiling jet turned on with his own hand with suicidal intent. End quote. And at the age of 55, Lester Gillis's father, Joseph, had taken his own life. Two days later, on December 27th, Lester was allowed to attend his father's funeral. He would never, ever talk about it. He would never talk about it. And his sister, Julie, said that it was because he felt guilty over it. He felt like his father killed himself because of the things that he was doing. And he felt like he was part of the reason, you know, that his dad took his own life. But because of his father's problems with alcohol, because he saw all that, he saw his, you know, decline, especially in his mental state and as just his problems that ensued. Lester Gillis was abstinent from alcohol, like he did not drink alcohol, and that more than likely was the reason why. And, um, you know, when he would later go on and start making money, he would eventually always be sending money home to his family to take care of his mom and his siblings and stuff like that, too. But he go ends up going back to the reformatory because he was only out for the funeral, And he becomes a role model at this reformatory. Like, he's put in charge of military cadets while he's there. Several teachers at this place were straight up quoted as saying he was the best student ever. He was the model student there. And on July 22nd, 1925, he was granted a second parole. His mom was, at this time, reduced to taking in boarders to help pay the bills. And Lester helped around the house more, and he took a job as an assistant mechanic at uh, Parkview Motor Company. And he was doing really, really good. He was earning money, and he was trying to help his mom with bills, and she refused any help from the kid. She's like, no, dude. Like, she basically wanted him to save his money to save up for his own car. It's like, listen, if you have your own car, you're probably going to stop stealing other people's. (laughs) I don't want your damn money, kid. Put it in the bank. But um, yeah, she refused any money that he would try to help her out with. And I mean, even though she was struggling, she just had that pride about her, you know. So Lester starts looking to make some fast money. All right. And he is arrested again at one point, and it's for stealing tires and auto parts and shit like that, and this time he's offered a deal that if he gives up the names of the other guys in the car stripping gang that he's in, you know, the strippers, like I was telling you about, that they would let him go with no charges, and he absolutely refused. He said, nope, I don't know none of their names, I ain't telling you guys nothing. So, On October 1st, 1925, he was shipped back to the state school at St. Charles again. On June 11th, 1926, at the age of 17, he was given his third and final parole. 
And they explained to him because he was like seven. He had this was six months before his 18th birthday. And they told him, listen, bro, if you get in trouble again, you're going to go to adult court. You're going to go to adult prison. There's no more reformatories or boys schools or anything like that. And I shit you not, the reformatory, when they paroled him for the third time, they offered him a job as an assistant engineer because he was a freaking role model there. And it wasn't because of his criminal shit. It was because he was to the T, followed all the orders, extremely respectful, didn't break any rules while he was in there. They offered him room and board and a salary, straight up job at the reformatory. And he refused. He's like, nope. He was actually at this point excited to get back to his family you know back to his home he wanted to see his siblings and he had nieces and nephews at this point stuff like that he wanted to see his mom so he's like no i'm not going to take a job here like i got a job waiting for me in which he did his job at the parkview motor company was waiting for him when he got out because he was really really good with vehicles but when he gets there after a little while he gets promoted to sales right he had so much knowledge on the cars and about the cars and how they ran and this and that. Like he starts selling a lot of cars and he's doing a really, really good job. He's making good money. He's wearing a suit to work every day because he's a salesman now. And it really, really helped his self-esteem. Like his self-confidence and his self-esteem was going through the roof because he's like, hell yeah, you know, am I finally doing something I love with something I love and I'm getting paid for it. I'm making a living. But by the end of the year, the Parkview Motor Company starts running into financial trouble and they have to let Lester Gillis go. So at the beginning of 1927, he is 18 years old and unemployed and he started working at a factory putting together stoves, right? And it was dirty and it was hard fucking work and he absolutely hated it, but he did it because he had to make a living. But while he's doing it, he's also still looking for other work. And he goes to apply at the uh, old station that he had done all this illegal shit for, you know, that basically was, it was a, uh, it was a front for car thieves and stripping body. Like he actually applied for a legitimate job at this place. He's like, no, I want to be on payroll. I don't want to get in fucking trouble anymore. I don't want to steal shit, <laughs> you know? But uh, he was really looking, like I said, for that honest position. And the guy who ran it, a guy named uh, Vandy Houghton, basically hired him as an honest employee because of him and his gang of car thieves and strippers. Because over the years, he had a reputation for knowing vehicles. He could strip them. He could steal them. He was fucking good at it. And so were his buddies. So the guy's like, okay, I'll give you an honest job. But in all actuality, the dude was hiring him for, you know, his little gang that he ran with. And on March 2nd, 1927, Gillis and an accomplice are arrested for breaking into Larson and Company to steal tires. They are charged with burglary. And he straight up admitted his guilt. Didn't even fade. Just, yep, he's like, yep, I did it. And the cops beat the shit out of him trying to get him to rat out everybody else that was involved. And even after the cops beat the hell out of him, he still refused to rat anybody out. So on March 17th, a couple weeks later, he goes in front of the judge and his mom, who's already in debt, she managed to scrape up enough money to pay restitution for all the things that he stole. So she goes in front of the judge and asks for leniency shit you not if it didn't work like the judge gave him a year's probation he had to report to probation once a month and his probation officer a guy by the name of joseph sheehan said he was very clean cut and quiet um, he got a job right there like he had to get a job i think within a month of starting probation within a couple weeks he got a job driving a truck and making deliveries he was working for uh, the commonwealth edison company in his spare time, he would work and service the vehicles, too. And he loved his job. Absolutely loved it. And he held this job for a year and a half, which in his lifetime, in his short lifetime, this is the longest job that he ever held because he enjoyed it. And he's living with his mom again, and she, of course, still refuses any financial help from him. 
and he pretty much stayed out of trouble. He would get caught speeding a lot, okay, because he's <laughs> just loved vehicles and he loved driving fast and he was super good at it. He found out that he could pay cops five or ten bucks and they would tear up speeding tickets. And at the time, that was a lot of money because he was only making like 30 bucks a week. And I think in this uh, year and a half, he only had like three speeding violations that he had to go to court for. That was it. He literally bribed the fucking cops to tear up the rest. But it kind of sucks because he becomes a favorite of the cops to shake down. Now, this dude has a long reputation of stealing cars, speeding, bootlegging, stripping cars for parts. He's already got a pretty damn long rap sheet at this point. And mind you, he's like 20 years old. You know what I mean? Like I said, he becomes a favorite of the cops to shake down. And what they would do is they would show up at his job and they would say they're investigating some kind of car theft or a burglary. And they would be like, hey, if uh, you don't pay us right now, we're going to take you in for questioning. And the thing about it was, if they took him in for questioning, he would lose his job. The cops are literally shaking this dude down once a week. And he's only making like 30 bucks a week and they just keep coming. You know, he would pay these bribes and he ended up becoming very antisocial because of this. Like he would go to work and come home and not do anything. And his mom was like, yeah, that's why is because he couldn't afford the cops shaking him down all the time. You know, the cops knew that he couldn't afford to lose his job. But they also know he was an easy person to to shake down. So, I mean, it's kind of shitty, to be honest with you. And it sucks because as soon as his year probation was up, he started getting back into his criminal activities again. And he says that he needs the extra money to pay cops off because, you know, they were taking his whole paycheck at this time. They were literally shaking him down for every penny he was making at his legitimate job. So he's still working his legit job, but he's still doing a little bit of minor criminal activity on the side to keep paying the cops off who were illegitimately shaking him down for no reason at all. He just basically fucking with him. But in late spring of 1928, he meets this super cute, petite, dark-haired Chicago sales girl by the name of Helen Warzniak. I read 15 years old, I, heard, I read 16 years old. The more factual account, I'm going to say, is 15 years old at the time. And Gillis was in love instantly. He loved her dark eyes. She was quick-witted. Um, she was basically taken with his confident style, you know, and his boyish grin. And Lester's mom even said, uh, in a direct quote, there had never been a girlfriend for less up to that time. He would go out with some friends of his sisters, but from the moment he met Helen, there was never room for any other girls in his thoughts. That's a direct quote from his mom right there. By September of 1928, she had become pregnant, and they had planned and saved their money, and they came to Indiana and eloped in Valparaiso, Indiana on October 30th, 1928. And it's funny because she would still call herself Helen Gillis, even after he changed his name to George Nelson. She still referred to herself as Helen Gillis. And um, the young couple ended up moving in with his sister, and he helped pay the $60 a month rent for the six-bedroom apartment. He would also buy the groceries, and he would still buy toys for his nieces and nephews and for his expecting baby. And his sister, you know, and his family didn't exactly know how he could afford all that. His sister said he was probably working for bootleggers at the time, but they never asked questions. She also mentioned that whenever there was news about the gangs in Chicago at the time, like this is right around like the St. Valentine's Day massacre and shit, I think four or five of Lester Gillis's childhood friends that he grew up with were involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Like, these are the kinds of guys that he ran with when he was a kid. And they had all moved up into, like, Chicago gangland 
while he's in and out of reformatories and he's married and trying to make an honest living now. Well, half an honest living anyway. But she said that he would never read the papers or even listen to the radio, but he would know about everything going on with the gangs in Chicago. More often than not, he would know it before it was even reported. You know, and it was basically because of his old friends that he did still have a loose association with. And on April 27th, 1929, Lester Gillis and Helen give birth to a son and they name him Ronald. And uh, this is six months after they're, they are married. Money starts getting really, really tight. All right. And in the fall of 1929, she says that she's pregnant again. And Gillis is determined to make money for his young family. Like, he was an extremely loving and devoted father and husband. And that is literally said by every single person that knew this guy. That he absolutely loved his family. And this also is like the first time that he gets referenced the name George Nelson. Basically, a sister comes home and checks the mail, and there's a letter from an auto company, and it's addressed to George Nelson. And she's like, do you know who this is? Because, you know, she would come home from work sometimes, and there'd be, like, gangsters hanging out, talking to him and shit. And, even, you know, and she would get after him. She's like, I don't want those guys hanging around my family. You know, he'd tell her, he's like, hey, my family's here too, all right? They stay outside. They don't hang around very long. My family is here too, so don't worry about it. But basically, she checks the mail, and there's a letter addressed to George Nelson. She's like, well, who's? do you know this person? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> that's me. You know, and she's like, why are you getting mail under an alias right now? He just kind of smiled and, and shook it off, you know what I mean? He didn't care. But at this time, too, you know, you got the Great Depression. You got all the shit, and one of his buddies mentions he's like you know what all these rich bitches and that's literally what he says direct quote one of his buddies like all these rich bitches don't care about losing their money in the stocks because they've already invested all their money in jewels man he's like you seen the jewelry they wear they wear all kinds you know they got all their money they don't care about no damn stock market so they start coming up with this plan to do some home invasions and on January 6th, 1930, at 7 p.m., Lester Gillis and his associates forced entry into the home of a magazine executive by the name of Charles Richter. The Richter family was just getting ready for a late dinner. Jean Richter, the wife of the family, she had just put their two kids to bed, they were age six and eight. And two young guys come to the door, and it's bitter cold outside, the wind's blowing, you know, it's early January in, you know, Chicago, man. It's it's cold, I can guarantee you that. They have the, you know, these big coats on. They got their collars up. And the maid opens the door, and the shorter of the two guys says, Mr. Marshall calling for Mr. Richter. A few minutes later, Richter comes to the door, and the shorter guy opens up the door, you know, lunges it open, puts a gun into his stomach, and all he says is, you know what we want, turn around and lead us in. So then three more guys come into the door. So there's a total of five of them at this point. They make Richter and the maid get on the floor face down. One guy with a shotgun watched over them while the others spread out and fanned out over the first floor. One guy walks to each phone and cuts the lines. There are four phones on the first floor. Another guy goes into the library of the house and opens all three windows in the library in case they needed to make a quick getaway outside. All of this happened in the span of under one minute. All right. Jean Richter, she doesn't realize what's going on because she had gone upstairs to tuck the kids in. And this is the wife, right? So she comes down the stairs and she sees her husband and two maids, because there was another maid collected at this point. They're all laying face down, you know, living room floor. And she's coming down the stairs and she sees them, dude with a shotgun, basically guarding them. And she like, you know, does that really like probably dramatic gas, just like, <sighs> you know, one of those. And uh, Mr. Richter hears that and he looks up at his wife and he just says, it's a holdup, dear. Now, don't get excited. Give these men everything they want. Direct quote, right? 
So one of the one of the guys in the house says, let's see what valuables you keep up there. And all she says is, please, my children are asleep upstairs. I'll give you anything if you promise not to frighten them. So the one guy who goes up there, he's like, there won't be any problems as long as, you know, we just get cooperation and you don't sound any alarms. Like there's not going to be any problems. So they get up to the second floor and one guy cuts the two phone lines upstairs. And one of the guys goes and peeks into one of the kids' rooms. And the boy, their older boy, he, the eight-year-old was a, was a young boy. He sits up straight in his bed and he just yells, he's got a gun. <laughs> and uh, Gene Richter walks over to this guy, like straight charges him. And she's like, you're not keeping your word. And the guy closes his door and he starts apologizing to her. He's like, lady, it was an accident. It wasn't her fault. I'm sorry. And he's just like, just fucking get us the goddamn jewelry, you know? So at 7.20 p.m., they all leave out the front door and they made off with approximately $25,000 worth of jewelry, which today would be worth about $387,000. And because this was a very prominent family in the safest area of Chicago, it made front page headlines. Like I said, safest part of the city mr and mrs richter were shown hundreds of photographs of people who could have been possible suspects they could not identify any of them as being the people who robbed them so a couple weeks later on january 22nd 1930 they robbed the home of Stuart templeton they got away with a bunch of jewelry valued at about $5,000, which would be about $77,000 today. And him and his maids as well were unable to give an accurate description to the cops, but the cops knew it was the same group of guys, and they started calling them the tape bandits because they would tape these fuckers up and they would cut all the phone lines. It was like that was their M.O., you know? And then, of course, everything cooled down for a couple weeks. On March 31st, 1930, at 3 p.m., a few guys show up as census takers to the house of uh, Lottie Brenner von Bulow, which is uh, which was on Sheridan Road at the time. And they noticed a shitload of drama going on in the house, right? And they're like, we're going to come back in a couple of hours. <laughs> they fucking did. They left, and they came back at 5 p.m., and then they carried out the robbery at the bungalow, and they got about $62,000 worth of jewelry, which would be valued at about $960,000 today, almost a million dollars worth of jewelry in one home invasion. So after this, you know, about a month later, about the middle of April, the Nelson family, the young Nelson family, moves to an apartment in Cicero, the rest of his family, because they rented this apartment under the name of George Nelson, Mr. and Mrs. George Nelson, and the family was puzzled by the name change, and then they were also puzzled by all the money he suddenly had. Because, like, don't get me wrong, he's still working a lot of hours at the standard gas station, like his legit job. But on the side, he's robbing all these fucking rich people, <laughs> you know? He told his family that the reason he changed his name was because he was just tired of the cops harassing him. He's like, as long as they know my address and know my name and know where I'm at, they are always going to come looking for a shakedown. So that was why that was the excuse that he used to change his name. But in all actuality, whether that's true, most of the people say that he changed it because Lester Gillis was not a hardcore name. He needed, he started calling himself Big George, which... He was not a big guy, you know, <laughs> he was a small guy, but that's where we're going to leave off for this episode. We're going to have two more parts to this, and in the second part, we're going to talk about some banks getting robbed, we're going to talk about some more home robberies, including the robbery of the mayor of Chicago, because Babyface Nelson went to his house and robbed his ass too. Shit you not, all right? So trust me, there's a lot coming up in part two and part three. I hope you enjoyed part one. And until part two, see you folks on the flip side. Peace.